What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is General Robert Spaulding. He's a retired United States Air Force Brigadier General after more than 25 years of service, a senior fellow at Hudson Institute and an author. China has injected itself into pretty much every area of life we care to care about, from media to technology, energy, food, transportation, and even culture. But this strategy wasn't random. It turns out that their entire plan was detailed in a book from 1999, which General Spaulding is very familiar with. Expect to learn what's actually happening with the Shanghai lockdowns, how facial recognition and drones are able to automatically find citizens who break laws, why American companies can't stand up to Chinese demands, why China's recent increase in military spending should worry everyone, and much more. It really does blow my mind that China and their plan for future global domination is just this big, looming elephant in the world that no one appears to care about actually pointing a finger at. Whilst everybody's accusing everyone else of misogyny or closet homophobia, no one's actually bothered about the fact that there is a huge superpower on the other side of the world slowly gearing up to take over everything. And the fact that there is a playbook that was written nearly 25 years ago doesn't surprise me in the slightest. They are significantly better coordinated than the West. This episode is brought to you by Crafted London. Finding men's jewellery that doesn't suck is very difficult, and Crafted London have nailed it. They are the number one men's jewellery company worldwide. They're sweatproof, waterproof, heatproof, and gym proof. They've got custom designs in gold and silver, necklaces, chains, pendants, bracelets, rings, and earrings. If you've seen me on any of the big cinema episodes on YouTube wearing a necklace, it will always be from Crafted. I absolutely love it. It works with formal wear, casual wear, whether it's daytime or nighttime. All of the pieces are super high quality. The designs are great, and uh, I love them. That's It's all I wear. Also, they have an unlimited lifetime guarantee so if your piece breaks for any reason at any point during the entire life of the product they will give you a new one for free get a 15 percent discount site-wide on everything by going to bit.ly slash cd wisdom and using the code mw15 at checkout that's bit.ly slash letter c letter d wisdom and mw15 at checkout Tell me if this sounds familiar. Your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Things that you used to do in a day are taking a week. You're drowning so much, you've now promoted your dog from company mascot to customer service representative. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, that is the 25th year anniversary of NetSuite. 25 years of helping businesses to do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system. With one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com modern. That's netsuite.com modern to get your own KPI checklist today. If you want more focus in your life, or if you find yourself dealing with an energy slump in the middle of the day where you just don't have the motivation to stay productive, fear not, because I do too which is why I spent more than a year creating the world's first productivity energy drink, Newtonic. Honestly, 
I'm so proud of this. I was involved in the design stage from the very beginning, and we made sure to only include the most heavily researched and evidence-based ingredients in the world at efficacious doses to create the most potent fuel for your focus ever made. It uses a science-backed formula of nootropic ingredients, including Cognizant for focus, Panax Ginseng to reduce distractions, and L-theanine to remove any jitters and keep you feeling great. We've got thousands of five-star reviews, and you can see exactly why by trying it for yourself right now with free next-day delivery on Amazon Prime in the UK and the USA. Simply head to newtonic.com slash modernwisdom. That's N-E-U-T-O-N-I-C dot com slash modernwisdom. But now, please welcome General Robert Spaulding. What do you know about what's happening inside of Shanghai right now? Well, I mean, I think I'm as informed as everybody else is, which is I'm looking at all the Twitter videos and uh, and the, all the articles. So, um, you know, the specifics, it sounds like, you know, it's fairly similar to the Wuhan lockdown where they were keeping people, um, you know, in their uh, in their in their uh, apartments. I think the thing that's um that they've moved on to is if you're quarantined, like they just take your pet right away. And, 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 you know, there's no, like, I, I think they've gotten more efficient at defining how they implement a lockdown. And, you know, a lot of these decisions that were probably painful in the very beginning, like in Wuhan, like, what do we do with about these pets? They've made the decision. This is what we're going to do. And, um, you know, it's it's basically they've got a checklist now. And one of the things that you you um, find out about living in China is there's checklists for everything, right? And you, you you go through the checklist and you make sure that you're hitting all the things. And and the checklist now is you know pretty pretty involved. So I think they've perfected what they think a lockdown should be, and that's what you're seeing in in Shanghai. Yeah, I've seen videos of bags of cats alive yeah. in the streets. Uh, I've seen videos of dogs seemingly being sort of killed slash immobilized slash disposed of which is i think those cats are going to be disposed of i think that's you know they are alive but i think they're they're going to be disposed of is is the my the impression that i've gotten from everything i've seen what do you think is the reason for doing that are they worried that they're a vector of transmission are they worried that if you have a pet you're more likely to go outside and break quarantine i i would i would imagine that it's they're a vector because i mean pets can get coronavirus so I, I would imagine they believe it's a vector of transmission you know if they're going to quarantine the people they're going to quarantine the pets um they don't really you know they they can't really kill the people although you know uh when you look at the uyghurs or or the falun gong you know they're not they don't really have a lot of problem with those types of things but they're you know at least at this point it's just the animals that they're after i saw a tweet that said 25 million people in lockdown in shanghai policed by drones that have facial recognition and give orders. People who go out on their balconies without masks are fined directly from their CBDC accounts. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome, isn't it? I mean, you think about it, the, what, you know, the technology that we created in Silicon Valley, and you basically, you know, what the Chinese have 
done is they've taken a systems engineering approach to uh, society, right? So they want to they want to basically automate how society performs. And, you know, if you think of it from a manufacturing perspective, for example, you know, we, we um, talk about Six Sigma and the idea is that you eliminate all, um, you know, anomalies and you make sure that your, you know, whatever errors that are causing systemic anomalies, you get rid of them. And so in a sense, they've taken those principles of manufacturing and using the tools of Silicon Valley, which are really this ability to um, harvest data and mine it and then, and then use it to, to um, basically cancel those that are outside that are anomalies, they have taken systems engineering in this IT um, system that we built in the West and combined it to create a way to automate their society. And, and it's performance-based. You do good, you're rewarded. You get you know better prices, you get better treatment. You do bad, you're you're canceled. That's it. Period. And so you get your performance built in um, because everything you do has immediate consequence on your life. Just like you said with the drones, like somebody's going to come there and they're going to charge your account if you mess up. Now, you know. That's something that's never existed. It's it's essentially like the concept of the panopticon, uh, which is a prison um, that was designed so that at any point a prisoner would think somebody is watching them. And so what they what you find with these kind of situations when you're always being watched is that people modify their behavior to ensure that you know they're not going to be punished and and so what they're trying to get is this digital panopticon where you're always being watched you know what the rules are you know if you break the rule you're going to be punished and so you get the behaviors and that's really what they're trying to get i want these behaviors i don't want those behaviors and i'm going to design a system that that automatically limits those behaviors yeah, well, I mean, with the Panopticon, it's kind of like a, a wheel and spoke design, right? So in the middle of it, you right. have uh, potentially one guard sat on a swivelly chair and going out away from him all the way around in 360 degrees or all of the different cells. The difference here is that it's not because of how scalable technology is. You don't just need to have one guard that might be looking. You could scale technology to the point where you are always being watched all the time right they're actually because is, the ai can do it right the, precisely you don't need and the ai never takes a you know a, you know a, a pee break and never you know needs a never coffee. goes on lunch break yeah, 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 the ai yeah. is like running man it's running in real time and so uh i mean it, when you think about it from you know logically if you were going to take an engineer an engineer's approach to um political science it's a perfect way that an engineer would design a system because Everybody, you know, there, and there's so many of these dystopian movies that take this approach where you basically just engineer society so that everybody does what they're supposed to. Um, I mean, it's, the, it's terrifying, but it is strange uh, the lack of limits that a bureaucratic dictatorial regime uh, opens up in technology, that there are certain areas of technology, how they can be implemented, how they can be integrated with other uh, elements of society, uh, that when you don't have a democracy and you have fewer human rights, there's a whole new world of uh, technocratic overreach that can be, can be garnered. 
Right. Well, and, and, and the other thing um, is that, you know, and, and what this has traditionally been what China has benefited from its connection to the West, and that is anomalies aren't always bad. Like you have people that commit crimes, but other anomalies are you invent stuff, you're innovative, you create new things that have never existed before. You know, people go to the moon, you know, you create an iPhone. These are also anomalies, uh, just like doing bad things are anomalies. So the problem is when you start to create this system, systematic approach to, um, you know, society, you're, you're, you're getting rid of all anomalies. You're not just getting rid of the bad ones. You're also getting rid of a lot of the good ones, too. And the, way, and the reason China's been able to get away with this is because they could just go to the West, who has the good and the bad, and take the good, leave the bad. And, and you know, what, what you see happening as a, as a consequence of coronavirus, where a lot of the policies that you're seeing in Shanghai were implemented also in the West. You know, countries in the West that are democracies were basically taking the same policies that China was in terms of lockdowns and, and, and all of these other restrictions. And so what happens is over time, and, and this, so China seeks to be the dominant system in the world and then have all systems look like it, which is kind of the same thing that the U.S. and the U.K. decided to do after the end of World War II. We think all societies should be democracies because not only um, we think that's the right way to go, it also protects you know, our vision of the system and that our democracy isn't coming under threat or pressure from those uh, nations that think differently. Well, the China thinks the same way. And so what it's been able to do in the two years of the coronavirus is really slowly begin to move democracies into its form of thinking about the relationship between the state and the individual. You know, the state has power over the individual and therefore the individual should do whatever the state says without question this has been how the West has basically um, adapted to coronavirus. And with things like contact tracing in the West, you're beginning to see the technology be brought in to enable that vaccine um, you know, passports, digital vaccine passports, passports is another thing. So, I mean, you're seeing the homogenization of the international order in a way that's completely opposite of how it was envisioned after the end of World War II um, between the US and the UK. What's happening with famine? I've been seeing tweets and news stories and stuff about famine in Shanghai. Is that true? You got any idea? Well, I don't know if there's famine uh, so much as, at least yet, so much as if you're locked up and you can't get to food, you're gonna be you're gonna be hungry. I mean, I I I lived in uh, Minot, you know, flying V52s, and we had a snowstorm one time, and I was in my house for a week. You know, finally I had to break out and go get milk and some other things. I mean, I think that's what they're running into is you know you after you're, in, you're there's only so much stuff that you're prepared to do in quarantine, and then if you can't leave to go get food, that's a problem. But surely the Chinese government must know that this is going to happen, right? You lock people down. You don't allow them to leave to go and get food. There are certain things that you need to do. And I guess maybe as well, this is one of the reasons that perhaps the killing of pets, I'm pretty sure that, yeah, vector of transmission will be one of them. But just if you have a pet, you've got to go outside to go to the bathroom. Good point. Yeah, good point. To have a walk. So I just think there's more and more situations there. Have you got any idea about why it is that there's some videos floating around of the Chinese government or their enforcement agency breaking into people's apartments and tasing them and taking them to sort of COVID isolation 
facilities. I've seen some awful videos and you never know on the internet, right? You see a video and you go, this could be from 2009 during the whatever, whatever crisis. Um, But these videos that look like kind of individual porta potties and everybody's got their heads stuck out. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know what that is, but there's definitely videos floating around of the Chinese government breaking into people's apartments and, and sort of tasing them and taking them away. Do you have any idea what's happening there? Well, um, I, think it's, I think it's all related to, hey, you may have had a positive test and now you're going to go um, spend time in the pokey. Um, I, it doesn't surprise me for Shanghai. What surprises me is you see the same thing in Australia. They got the same basically camps where they send people to like i can see it in china i can see it in shanghai it makes sense to me but when i see it happening in a in a country that's supposed to have you know something related to the bill of rights and 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 you know the rule of law and you're saying hey this is what they're instituting that's what really bothers me because shanghai i I totally expect this kind of behavior i remember i remember you know the just a concern for the well-being of people is different there you know i've seen people in the most horrid situations in china i remember one time one of my neighbors was moving and the moving truck shows up with the crates and there's no people like where are all the people and they take the lid off the one of the crates and all the people come out of the crate they they were basically sealed up in the crate and that's how they had transmitted them or, or transported them to the work site so when you think about hey concern for the well-being of people that's not what you get in china you know it's just not the the system so i'm not surprised to see it um it is it is their system um and what i'm surprised is that it's been able to be replicated in the west does it put into slightly harsher contrast accusations of fascists totalitarian regime overreach and slavery and monday racism and stuff like that when we do have kind of this very i mean look at india which has a an explicit caste system right which is Mm -hmm. still unbelievably terrifying and i've only just started learning about this um and then you have china where i mean the detention camps actually look like they're getting worse not better now and it just seems to be this sort of blinkers on view i noticed that the current um Hollywood push, especially from Disney, uh, but the whole Hollywood push around the Don't Say Gay Bill from Florida didn't seem to extend to the most recent Harry Potter film, which got released in China and had uh, the only six seconds of LGBT content in there, which suggested that Dumbledore had previously been in a relationship with this other guy. Uh, They removed that, especially for the Chinese edition. So you do have what seems like uh, double standards, um, either willful willful ignorance uh and or uh, outright double standards coming from the west when they're looking at their own world versus just complete uh disregard for what's happening over in china well i mean if you think about it um and you and you look at kind of in particular not just the end of world war ii the cold war but after the end of the cold war and say the 30 years after the end of the cold war um, and you look at, you know, whose prerogatives, you know, nations around the world um, listen to. It was America, right? They were li- listening to. I mean, America was um, the most powerful, had the most powerful economy, the most productive economy, and um, and that 
economic heft uh, and the willingness to use that economic heft to build up other countries like the Marshall Plan or uh, rebuilding Japan or Korea after all these countries after World War II. And then you realize that over the course of those 30 years, that power, that economic productivity, the supply chain of the world, if you will, has shifted from America to China, now has allowed China to take the mantle of America. And so this idea that, you know, it's um, – and I, when I lived in Shanghai from 2002 to 2004, you know, all of my neighbors were building, you know, factories in the Shanghai Special Economic Zone, and big companies, big U.S. corporations. And what those business executives would tell me is like, we're going to change China to be more like America. You know, the more that we're integrated economically with this society, the more China is going to change to be more liberal. They're going to be, you know, they're beginning to accept our principles and values. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party determined after Tiananmen Square that that was absolutely not going to happen. And so while it was a little bit of hubris on our part, What's actually happened is the reverse has happened, is that now, rather than U.S. corporations spreading the values of liberty, democracy, rule of law, free trade, it's that U.S. corporations are now responding to, the, to where the, the economic power lies in the world, and they're spreading the same authoritarian or totalitarian principles that China wants to espouse. So it should not be surprising that we're seeing this shift. Uh, in our corporate sector, in our financial sector, away from, hey, we're going to promote the, the, the principles of America to we're going to pr promote the principles of the Chinese Communist Party because that's where our bread is buttered. So there's, there's, a, there's a, a, a strong tie between, hey, you're economically powerful to, hey, you get to, you get to draft the narrative. That's what the Chinese figured out. Like the the Soviets were like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna go out you with weapons. The Chinese are we're gonna go out with you with money and ec economics and finance, and we're gonna use that, and not just you know our, the power of our productivity and product productive economy, but we're gonna invest in the emerging market economies to the extent that they look towards us, not the U.S. Right. So it's no longer gonna be the U.S. dictating how what are the principles and rules of the international order. It's China, and so that's what we're seeing play out. Out, you know on a on a daily basis what i would agree with is yes in terms of the power economically that china has and also supply chain too so whether that be downstream or upstream from whatever we need what i don't think they've managed to do just yet is take on the mantle culturally that america had right that sort of cultural leader people following that way the american dream i'm not seeing yet people in the west look to the culture of china outside of the corporate world uh, and say oh i want uh, chinese fashion and chinese i mean like k-pop is the closest thing that i've seen to that even japan i was thinking about this the other day i'm aware that these this is not just one like homogenous zone over there but just generally i've seen eastern cultural influence seem to wane a little bit anime uh the sort of the the push that we had maybe about sort of 10 to 15 years ago with stuff like pokemon um i don't know i that's been an interesting thing for me to observe that being said in developing nations you know belt and road um initiative stuff i don't know whether that's the same case i don't know whether there's some countries in africa that have received tons and tons of money from china and not only look to them as saviors and uh, collaborators financially but then also perhaps might be sort of i don't know praising 
Chinese cuisine or Chinese fashion or music or whatever? Well, I mean, I, cause I think you're looking at it the wrong way. The Chinese don't need us to adopt their culture. They don't need us to, you know, fall in love with their brands. All they need to do is get the brands that they already know to start spreading the messages that the Chinese want them to spread. So in other words, when you say, you know, the Chinese aren't, you know, controlling culture, you're, it's because you're looking for a Chinese company to do it. No, that's not the way of unrestricted warfare. That's not the way of war without rules. It's you get the companies that you like to do to say the things that the Chinese Communist Party wants them to say. So the message, so you're getting the same messenger. It's just the message that's coming out of them is different. And so, you know, and, and you're already conditioned to say, okay, this is coming from America, so it must be okay. Well, no, it's coming from America, but the message is Chinese. And so, you know, this is this is why we, you know, and, and I, I see this in D.C. all the time, like, oh, the Chinese will never, like, take over. They're not trying to take over in the way that you think. They're not trying to make the face Chinese. They're trying to make the message Chinese. So if you are sufficiently reliant on China for your trade, for your money, for your distribution, they can then have leverage over the things that you do and say back home. You then become a conduit for the message from the CCP. Okay, cool. I, underst I understand. Um, I guess an example of that might be that um, Warner Brothers that produced this new Harry Potter film that had these seconds of dialogue taken out of them, they had to do that in China. Over time, let's say that they... Uh, were more reliant, increasingly more reliant on China, China would perhaps say, well, actually, we don't just want you to take it out of the Chinese version, but we don't we don't want it in any version, perhaps. Right. Okay, cool. Fine. And so that's what Hollywood's been doing, right? And you've seen that. The other thing that you notice, and I, I see this all the time in movies that come out, how many times you know, in, in the last 10 years have you watched a movie and the 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 hero coming to rescue, particularly science science fiction films, it's you know, because it, it's set in the future and it's a Chinese, you know, uh, astronaut. Oh, they had a spare. And they're saving the world, right? Wasn't that, um, wasn't that the one when uh, the Mars, the Martian, wasn't it that China had the exact rocket that we needed, but it was a second one and then we were going to finally collaborate and they were going to come out. I can't remember, that one might have blown up as well. But yeah, I do know, I know exactly the sort of narrative that you're talking about. It's also been a while since we've seen a big blockbuster action movie where China has been the primary enemy. You never see that. Never. It doesn't happen. In fact, uh, the one time that it was going to happen, which was the, uh, the remake of Red Dawn, they changed it to the North Koreans. Which, I mean, the North Koreans attacking the United States, are you kidding me? I mean, <laughs> as a plot point, it's like the stupidest thing. That I mean... <laughs> hilarious you mentioned earlier on unrestricted warfare which is this book from 1999 that i'd never heard of and seems absolutely terrifying can you explain what unrestricted warfare is how it came about everything else yeah so it was written by these two pla um air force lieutenant colonels and it was basically their attempt to create a doctrine for how you compete with a more a uh, militarily powerful foe. And it really had to do with the fact that they saw United States, the United States as their number one um, enemy, but they didn't have the wherewithal to go up against them directly militarily. 
how would you um, how would you deal with that problem? And so there's two trends um, that they noticed. One was the internet, and um, it was very early beginning there, but it was it was it was growing rapidly. And the other was globalization. And so essentially, they built a military doctrine around how do you um, how do you exploit the internet and um, and globalization to uh, overpower a militarily superior foe. That's so in military um, in the military, there's doctrine. And the doctrine is basically based on lessons learned of all the conflicts you've had prior. What are those principles that you distill from those lessons learned that allow you to plan for future uh, conflicts? You know, um, things like mass or surprise or deception. You know, how do you bring those principles into the way that you think about war? What they did is they take they took that and they built a uh, a doctrine around how do you use the internet and globalization to basically almost like the Germans went around the French Maginot line. How do you bypass the military, which is there to defend the sovereignty and political independence of a society and go right at the society itself and begin to attack the society in a way that, number one, um, doesn't highlight you as an enemy? And number two, enables you to gain specific advantage advantages that your adversary doesn't see happening right so it's it's basically happening in the day to day and you're basically um, losing your political independence and sovereignty day by day by day as this uh, conflict unfolds how impressive of a document is this it seems pretty prescient it seems like it's been able to predict what was going to happen what does it feel like reading it well, I mean, so I read it in 99 and I read it again in 2013 and in 99, I'm like, this is crazy. And 2013, you, I read it and I'm like, oh my God, these guys. So when you go back to, you know, I flew B2s, right? So I'm an airman. When you go back into the history of air power and how that became used as a weapon system, it, very early on, they're like, you know, the army, we didn't have an air force in the United States. We had an army. The army's like, this thing's useless for military. There were theorists back then saying, okay, this is what you can do with an airplane. Guys like in the, in the U.S., General Billy Mitchell, in, um, in Italy, Giulio Duhay, um, they, um, they uh, theorized that an airplane could be a very powerful weapon. What these guys are saying in 1999 is, Holy smokes, this is the next evolution of warfare. Here's the, here is a weapon even more powerful than the airplane, and here is how you use it. So in, in a lot of ways, I got the opportunity. Like, I'm, I'm you know, Billy Mitchell was dead, um, I think, when I was born. Um, I'm now getting to see the birth of a whole different kind of warfare that, you know, I, everything else in, the, in, in, in kind of air power sense is all history to me, you know, things that I read about. This I'm actually getting, uh, I'm, I'm able to see. And when you go back as an airman and you read the history and you think, like, how could anybody have ever disagreed with Billy Mitchell? And then you experience it yourself because I'm like, these guys are crazy. They're nuts. There's no way you're going to ever be able to do this. And then I see over the course of 20 years that that's exactly what's happened. I'm like, this is, is you know, as a, as a military guy, I'm like, wow, this is really interesting because I, I, I never saw this coming. 
I, I read the document. I thought it was nuts. And it actually came to pass. That is, that's, you know, it's terrifying because obviously it's successful. But then you got to say, as a strategist or a military thinker, you're like, that's pretty cool. I got to, I got to see this unfold in real time and be duped <laughs> into thinking that th these guys are nuts. They're not, they, don't, they don't know what they're talking about. Why is it that they were able to see something or have faith in a trajectory that you thought at the time was ridiculous? I think it has to do with the circumstances of, of what the Chinese Communist Party is. It's primarily a political organization. And so the People's Liberation Army is the party's army. It is the armed component of the Chinese Communist Party. And so when you're a um, and, you know, Clausewitz says war is politics by other means. In other words, I use military force to achieve a political outcome. I couldn't have got any other way. Well, but the Chinese don't think that way, and Mao didn't think that way, and you know, through their 5,000 years of history, there's a lot of examples that they think a little bit differently about warfare, and that is it's much better to achieve your objectives without going to war because war carries with it the risk of losing everything. And so you know, I think they were already programmed. You know, so Mao's concept of people's war is embedded into the way the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Liberation Army already think and that that what that is is that politics is war in other words it's not war is um politics by the another means politics is war and in, and that's the way you have to approach it and if you approach it from the standpoint that politics is war and then you see these tools beginning to um materialize that allows you to take your political warfare and export it globally to somebody else that's not even in your borders and, and, and do that, you know, because the internet and the globalization gives you the power to do that. Boom. The same way that the airplane, you know, when paired with the logistics might of the United States meant that we're the most powerful military on the earth. The, the, these two colonels, Lieutenant colonels said, okay, if I can take these tools, I can export the way that we think about warfare, which is basically political in nature. How do we, undermine the faith and confidence of a society in the governing structure of that society? And then how do we slowly turn those elites of that governing structure to think of the world where, you know, they um, have the right to be in the leadership position they have, and that by that right, that the individuals below them should just basically do what they say, that becomes the way that they create safety, because ultimately the Chinese Communist Party, they just want to exist. And if the rest of the world looks like they do and the people that they're interacting with are the elites of the rest of the countries and the elites all agree, right? They all agree that they are in charge and everybody should do what they say. They don't care, you know, what you're, how you describe that. You can call it American democracy. You can call it the EU democracy. They don't care as long as you have a separation between the individual rights and what the elites are allowed to do. How do you think that China sees their enemies? Um, well, they see everybody. Anybody that's outside their borders is an enemy. And, um, and uh, you know, the, the whole adage, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they don't have strong alliances. What they do have is interests, and then they use those interests to play off their enemies. Because, again, if politics is your way of doing things, then the more that you can get your 
what you view as your enemies um, to go after each other, the less, the more secure you're going to be. And so, you know, Russia, Iran, North Korea, you know, people think, well, they're allies of the Chinese. Well, in a sense, they are. But in a sense, the Chinese love it when the Russians and the, and the Iranians and the North Koreans are basically creating problems for America because the Chinese also see the Russians, the the, the um, Iranians and the North Koreans as adversaries, right? They're on their border um, and they want to they want them to be distracted. And so getting all of these nations to fight amongst themselves is a perfect um, is a perfect. And you think about it, not just, you know, Russia, Iran, North Korea, but if you go to talk to any American ally in Asia, Singapore, the Philippines, right, North or South Korea, what do they what do they constantly tell American diplomats and uh, and leaders? Oh, don't get us to choose. We want we want to do business with China, and we want to have you as a security partner. So ultimately, you're creating this thing where you know the United States is not able to grit a coalition to go against China, and China can't see uh, an, an alliance materialize that can challenge it, right? Because everybody is really unwilling to come together as a group to challenge China. That's essentially what they're trying to work out. So it's fine that China doesn't have allies. What they want to ensure is that nobody else does either. And the way that you do that is you constantly keep this, um, this, this, uh, this, this friction between and amongst not just Russia, Iran, and North Korea, but also the democracies, particularly where uh, China is concerned. So one of the things that's happened because of Russia invaded Ukraine is the EU is now looking even more forcefully at, hey, how do we deal with China? One of the things that Chinese have been very, very successful at doing is taking the U.S. and EU and splitting them when it comes to China. So they have been very effective at at splitting apart alliances, particularly when it comes to them. And so they don't need allies if nobody else has allies. Yeah, these uh, loose coalitions with whoever China has, they're uh, friendships of convenience rather than genuine alliances that stand there. And I mean, it is kind of like having the playbook open wide and you can almost see the, the horizon coming a little bit when you think, look, just consider everything that China does as purely in its own interests. All that they care about is them. And if you can help them get on their way, then absolutely fine. They're going to be fine for that to happen. However, the second that you can't anymore, they're not going to be bothered. And also they don't mind being ruthless and culling you if needs be. It's um the more that I learn about it, the more sort of scary it 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 seems. And it is such a effective way to legislate or or to run a com a country, I'm not saying that it's the best thing to do or even a, a an optimal thing to do for the people that live in it, but you can get a lot done if you're a dictatorship. Well, I, that's why Trudeau, you know, said, "I wish I could be, you know, have a system like China does," and and, and essentially that's what politicians in the West want. They want a system like China because they think they can get a lot done. And I think what you know, at least the framers of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, particularly uh, guys like Alexander Hamilton that looked at all prior uh, governing structures and said, how do we fashion something where nobody can gain ultimate power because ultimate power is corrupting? You know, this idea is losing favor in the world. And it's losing favor because 
the most powerful uh, country in the world is no longer the United States. It's now China. And its ability to move the narrative in its favor means that this lust for liberty that came out of the American Revolution and really found um, you know, a home in so many nations afterwards, you know, we've been in, in existence over 240 years, but all of that has now lost its luster. And even within the United States, you have the citizens of the United States saying, uh, and, and not without, you know, the Chinese being very, um, involved in how they accelerate that, you know, uh, social, um, unraveling that we are losing that, you know, what I would call, you know, lust for freedom that really motivated our ancestors to create this, this, uh, this system. And so, you know, when I say, you know, China is the most existential threat that, um, not just America, but democracy has ever faced. I really believe that because it's not about tanks moving through the fold of gap. It's not about the armed might of the Soviet union. It's really about us losing our lust for the constitutional protections that our ancestors devised because they were concerned about a government having power over the people. You know, we have people like Arnold Schwarzenegger, who came from former, you know, communist country, comes to the United States, finds enormous wealth saying, you know, you ought to do exactly what the um, country says, you know, because of um, and you, then freedom. Who, who, who wants this freedom? You know, Everybody should give up their freedom for coronavirus. Well, no, that the, the Constitution was not designed so that you just give up your freedoms um, for convenience. It's designed that if you give up your freedoms, then what happens is tyranny. And essentially, you know, once you give <laughs> once you give a, a politician an inch, they're going to take it a mile. I see from a politician's perspective why a uh, dictatorship would be so seductive, right? Because a democracy, is, it's, there's so much friction. Having to get people to agree, all this voting, all the campaigning, all of the problems with actually getting to hear what people want and then having to be accountable for making sure that you deliver the thing that you, to them that you said that you were going to give them. Like, it does look, from the outside looking in, if you forget about uh, human welfare and decency and, and freedom and liberty and all that stuff, it actually does look like a pretty effortful way to run a country. However, yeah, I um, it's so it's so interesting the way that these policies have sort of looped back around. But you talk about the magic shoes of technology. What are you referring to there? Well, I mean, I think what they are saying is these. Um, when you look at the U.S. in terms of warfare, we had kind of what's called the first offset, which was nuclear weapons. Um, and, um, and ICBM technology. Second offset was, you know, this use of, uh, GPS, um, stealth, um, with aircraft, uh, networking computers. And, uh, and we were talking about in, um, in 2013, 2014 at the Pentagon about the third offset. What was a third offset going to be? And I think what, um, it's related to where the internet, where they thought the internet was going. And in particular, this ability to target the individual. So John Warden talks about, um, you know, what you should go after uh, in terms of 
attacking a society in order to have a successful military campaign, one of the things that you should not uh, go after is the population, right? Because rather than so bombing the population really turns them against, you know, against the people bombing them, not the leaders of the country. If you're trying to create a political outcome, then you need to go after the leaders of the country because they're the ones that are going to make the political decision based on the pressure you put on them. If you put it on the population, they're just going to it's going to reinforce the, the rule of the political elite because it's going to garner their the people's support against whoever's bombing them. So military force is not a good tool for getting the population behind you. And what these two PLA uh, colonels, lieutenant colonels saw was, you know, the Internet is a way to go after the population at a, on an individual basis. So if I can get you to change your perceptions, your intentions, your behaviors using the Internet, now I've got a tool to really change the, the game of warfare, which is warfare being a political endeavor. Um, and if you can use populist or populism as a way to go after the ruling elite, and you can take these tools that were created in Silicon Valley and go after the population in a way that their perceptions, their intentions, their behaviors are modified in such a way that, you know, now, like, and they, here's an example of the way that we used um, uh, force in, in uh, the Kosovo War. So we basically, in a nutshell, went after the assets of the elite supporting Milosevic. And we took, we started just taking away. Night after night, we were sending B2s to Belgrade and other parts of Serbia to take away their assets. And, and pretty, pretty quickly, they realized, hey, I'm not going to have anything if we don't stop this. And, and Milosevic ended up um, being tried for war crimes. Well, you can also go after the population using the internet and begin to get these same kind of outcomes. And that's what the Chinese, so when you talk about the magic shoes of technology, you know, we're moving from, you know, how do you take a airplane and make it the ultimate weapon on earth um, for, you know, using force to get a political outcome to how do I take this, you know, information technology and use that as a weapon to get my outcome and at far less risk and at far less cost, and instead of targeting the elites, which I'm doing with the, the, the military force, I'm targeting the population. And all I want to do is get them, number one, to not be um, aligned you know, as one cohesive whole. And number two, you know, the, the narratives that they believe are you know, less and less supporting of the governing structure of that system they're in. So it's a perfect, if you think about it, you know, it's, a perfect, it's a perfect technology. And that's what, you know, that's what they were talking about. You've just described the last five years of media communications. Bingo. That's what it's felt like, you know, a lack of trust in the officials that are supposed to run the, the country, uh, a lack of faith in the organizations that are supposed to dispense the news and the media to us, uh, a lack of understanding or even agreement around what true means, uh, a lack of faith that the other people that are in the country agree with you or want the same things that are good for the country, a lack of agreement about what is good for the country, mutual fractioning and distaste. And yeah, I mean, so I learned about the uh, Internet Research Agency, Russia's sort of cyber disinformation unit, and that seemed pretty sophisticated. 
just how aggressive and mature is China's disinformation process? Well, I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, the Russians are like. I mean, it's like trying to compare, you know, um, uh, you know, J. Paul Getty and you know some guy that runs a local convenience store. You know, so the guy that runs a local convenience store, he may have a little bit of throw weight, but it's not like a Getty. And, you know, so that's the difference. So they have the same kind of, you know, maybe intent in terms of what they're trying to do, but Getty can do it on a much bigger scale. And that's the thing with China. Um, the other thing, you know, where the media's, media is involved, go look at who the top five media companies are in the United States and then go look at who their shareholders are and then go look at who the, those shareholders and look at their relationships with China. And you begin to see the, 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 the problem, right? Have you so ever that's seen, the goal, have globalization you ever, part. Have you ever seen the um, map of Disney and how much stuff it owns? You can go and look online and there's a super high quality image. The reason it needs to be super high quality is that when you look at it normal sized, everything's in type 0.1 font. And you zoom in and you realize that you thought you were getting a varied meal. No, you're not getting a varied meal. It's all coming from the same tree at the very, very top. Right. And that's essentially what's happening with the media. And, um, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a tra it's, it's a travesty. It's, it's, it's a tragedy, too. It is, you know, we look at the media as a fourth estate in, in the United States. And it's supposed to be the honest broker. It's supposed to step in and say, okay, this is what the government's telling you. This is what's actually going on. Because anybody that's done policy uh, in Washington, D.C. can tell you that policy comes from corporate and comes from financial institutions. It doesn't come from, you know, the um, good intentions of uh, uh, citizen servants that come – citizen servants that come to Washington, D.C. I mean they may come with this idea of they're going to change things. Um, if they don't if they – um, lose that lust for serving the people, what they end up doing, I've seen a lot of people do this, they just end up leaving. They're like, I'm so frustrated, I can't get anything done. Uh, people don't care. And the ones that end up staying, they stay because they become enriched by it. And so in many ways, and there's a good book, um, Catherine Gale, um, who was a businesswoman uh, in, in Wisconsin, had a food company um, had an epiphany one day when she was working on strategy for her company. And so she wrote this book called The Politics Industry. And so if you look at China as kind of a one-party um, authoritarian system, you know, Catherine Gale makes a very compelling argument that America has become a dual-party uh, authoritarian system where the parties actually fight um, not amongst each other, um, they fight amongst others, right? So they're basically, um, the idea that the Democrats and the Republicans don't uh, agree on the issues is more or less the theater that's put on that allows them to have the control over the policy that actually gets made. And so um, and it, when you think about it from a, just a foreign policy sense, um, having been in this for a long time and national security policy, you see that um, whether you're on the Democratic side or the Republican side, those policies tend to be pretty similar. And then when you get right down to brass tacks, like how are we going to do telecom policy in the United States? How are we going to do energy policy in the United States? You know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of industry influence on how those things get done. You know, so uh, are you saying it, that it, the it is, that the left and right is performative disagreement? 
It's performative disagreement in order to prevent the, um, you know, any kind of real change that benefits those that aren't in the ruling elite is, is the best way. To, and, and, and I, you know, having seen this on the policy side and seen how effective um, that corporations were and financial institutions were in getting what they want and how ineffective you know, the average citizen was in getting what they want. It just really brought home to me the power of, you know, how we've, we've basically used the rules um, to uh, create a duopoly in the United States. So there's an appearance of, um, you know, that you have a choice, but in reality, a lot of these people are, um, have, uh, in some respects, they're incentivized to maintain the system as is because they profit from it. Well, the illusion of choice is a great way to make people feel like there's nothing to rise up against. The problem isn't the system writ large. The problem is those Democrats or those Republicans or whatever. Talking about the, um, the military spending earlier on, China had a strategy of, of limited military spending for a while, didn't it? Well, I mean, I don't know what you mean by limited. Uh, you know, there's... Um, I guess in the sense that uh, it did study the Soviet Union and it did realize that the, the mistake the Soviets made were, were to spend 40% of GDP on the military. So um, limited, yes. Um, I guess what, what, they would, what they were trying to do is make sure that um, the social contract in China is, is, is this. If you agree to give up your liberties, um, to have anything to say with how the countries run, we endeavor as a Chinese Communist Party to provide for you, you know, to provide a, a job. Um, and uh, as long as you give up those liberties, that's the social contract. And so in order to do that, you know, they, they kept uh, military spending at a modest level. That being said, you know, they don't spend on R&D because they steal everything. And um, the the um, renminbi is such that you know the purchasing power parity with regard to the U.S. and China means that every dollar you know sp you know every yuan spent is like you know six dollars six American dollars, and so I think you know while yes they have you know in 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 aggregate they've spent less year over year than the United States considerably less. I think what they get out of it is a lot more, and um, and really their their goal was not so much to be a military power until the time was right, right? So they until they had grown the product productivity of their society sufficiently. You know, now they what they saw after World War II is the U.S. had the supply chain. You, you own the supply chain, you dictate to the world. They wanted to own the supply chain. Now they do. Now they can start to build their military, which you're seeing that start they've, to accelerate. They've just started to expand, right? So it looks right, like they're right. really aggressively. Are they looking for getting ready for a conventional conflict, do you think? Oh, yeah, they're going to invade Taiwan. That's coming, it's, without a doubt. And, and the, the power that, and might that they have uh, accrued over the last 20 years is staggering. It is, I mean, I'm not kidding when, you know, you could basically cover every square inch of Taiwan with the weaponry that they've developed.
It's going to make uh, it's Putin's just, it, invasion of Ukraine look oh my paltry. God, it's, the, the, it, and they don't care about the people, right? So if you don't care about the people, all you want is the land because it, it fits your narrative. You know What you promise to the Chinese people, hey, you keep us in power, we're going to restore us to greatness. One of them is, is, is basically getting back Taiwan. You know, they have the bill and, you know, any base that we have in the region will be leveled to dust if we get in the way. I just don't think people realize how much they've built over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. It's just it's amazing. It's incredible. What's happening in the South China Sea at the moment? Well, I mean, part of the South China Sea is controlling the resources of the South China Sea, but also being able to have. um, So back in the 80s. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party gave an order to the PLA, hey, um, uh, we want you Sorry, to Sorry, what's the PLA? The, the People's Liberation Army, Sorry. the military. Yep. So they gave an order to the military to control the South China Sea. And um, what the PLA uh, came back and said is, like, we don't have the resources. Like, you know, in order for us to maintain control of the South China Sea, you know, we would need to have aircraft carriers. We don't have aircraft carriers. We don't have a navy. Um, we just don't have the resources. And so the South China Sea islands were really fulfilling an order that the PLA had received, you know, decades earlier and that the China, that China just had finally had the resources to actually go out and build. So they just built them for aircraft carriers that don't move. And now they now they have the, the planes, they have the ships, they have the fuel, they have the logistics, they have everything they need to be sustained down there and control it. The other thing that the other challenge in terms of um, that China has with regard to uh, Taiwan is they know that they can be cut off from resources, energy resources, raw materials. So they built the Belt and Road Initiative, which is essentially a way, and, and they describe it as we're going to look west. And what what that means is, you know, bringing oil through the Strait of Malacca is really how they get energy. Well, that can easily be um, blockaded by submarines, right? So. Now, how do I get my energy? Well, I want to have this Belt and Road Initiative that allows me to go into Pakistan, go into Iran, go into um, North Africa and Middle East and get my resources another way so that the, you can't block me out in the Strait of Malacca. It also has to do with Russia, Eastern, um, East, um, um, uh, Central um, Asia. It's really getting all the resources uh, from there and, and allowing the, the, the Chinese to really have an alternative source uh, for raw materials and energy and food when they invade Taiwan. So when you look at what happened when Russia invaded Ukraine, part of the benefit that the Chinese get to see in watching the Russians invade Ukraine is to see the response of the West, right? What are the things that the West does? Because what, what China wanted to do is if I can see that response, then I know what to plan for. Oh, and you so think that that was a dry run for Taiwan? I, I think it's a dry run for Taiwan, and and that's why you think about it from the Chinese perspective. That's why because Putin went to Xi, and basically she said, "Hey, wait until after the Olympics." But he got the green light from Xi. What she wanted out that was to see, you know, how the not just how the Russian military performed, um, because I would say that the, the Chinese military much more professional, much more. Uh, much better equipped, much better trained than the Russians. But it's also like, how the how is the West going to react? And in some, 
you know, I'm just sitting back as a strategist, right? I'm watching this play out. I'm like, and, you know, you're like, okay, this really, this bad thing's going to happen over here. And I have this, you know, bad thing happening right here. And you're like, should I go in guns blazing here and let that guy know that's going to be even a bigger problem, know what my guns are? You know, you're looking at this and you're like watching it happen in real time. Like, why are we showing them this? Right. We should not be it should not be guns blazes because Russia is not the power. They've got an economy less than the size of Texas. China is the power. They are basically getting all and we're we've taken out the playbook and, and thrown the whole thing in at Russia. And now we have nothing left. And not only that, but now China is beginning to take its. It's kind of the way it looks at its sphere of the world and beginning to create the mechanisms. So when they move into Taiwan, we're going to be like, eh, can't do that one, eh, can't do that one, eh, can't do that one. And we're just going to be sitting there and, and people are going to be upset. They're going to be frustrated. Like, why can we not do something? Well, the reason we can't do anything is because we showed all our cards vis-a-vis -vis Russia. And I'm, I'm not saying this as, Hey, we shouldn't support Ukraine. I'm just telling you what we've done is we've given we've given the Chinese the keys to victory uh, over Taiwan without ever having to really break a sweat. I mean, that's the thing that scares me. Dude, this is one of those videos that resurfaces online three years later in the middle of a crisis, and everybody goes, "the the signs were there, the signs were there." This this everybody knew it, and you go, oh, "Okay." Uh, I, I, it really is, it's a combination of awe and dread that I kind of look at, um, what China is able to do, right? It is unbelievably sophisticated and, and, and very, very impressive. The only problem is that it's being used to facilitate a regime that a lot of us don't want to have happen. Um, it's, it is pretty, pretty scary. One of the other things that I thought about and I've seen stories on was their role in the fentanyl crisis that was happening in America. How, how sophisticated or purposeful was that? Well, um, the, the beauty of China, again, the, the systems engineering to society, right? Getting people to do things that are in their own interest and, um, and making sure that the things that they, they don't do, they don't do because they know there will be consequences. So... It doesn't matter where you're going in the world today. If you're getting fentanyl, it comes from the same place. It comes from China. And it comes from not from, you know, like in uh, like in the U.S. Midwest where you got a guy uh, in, a, in a trailer house out in the middle of nowhere, you know, blowing himself up. It's coming in factories, right? They're making it in factories. And so and so you're like, well, how is it that China doesn't have a fentanyl problem? If that's the source. How is it there's no fentanyl problem in China? Well, very easy. The, the Chinese know if they're making fentanyl, they can make all they want and they can profit off it all they want. Just don't sell it uh, in China or they end up dead. So, and so really, um, but the Chinese, they have a really, when it comes to how you make your money, they don't care as long as it doesn't impact the party, right? If you don't, if you're, if you're, if you don't impact the party, then you don't have at it. If it actually helps the party, even better. So if you can get rich and it helps the party, even better. Uh, one of the most sick examples of this is organ harvesting in Chinese prisons. 
who are who are having their uh, organs harvested? Healthy people. Who are the healthy people? They're religious dissidents, the Falun Gong, the the Uyghurs, right? So you get in there, you live a healthy lifestyle, you're a good um, you know uh, uh, candidate for organ transplant. Boom, you're dead. Let's take your organs organs and sell them. Guess what? The people that run the prisons and the hospitals get to make you know the the tens of thousands of dollars for from selling your organs. Okay, so. They get rich, but the, you know, the party gets rid of their, uh, their enemy, which is you know, these religious, what they call religious fanatics. Sick, terrible, but you know, in, in, it works in the system. Fentanyl is the same way. You have the, the, the Chinese pharmaceutical companies making the, making the drugs, selling it through the triads and the cartels. So that's the Everybody, distribution mechanism. Because I was wondering yeah. how it is that China gets it out of their country and into America. Yeah, so the triads are a big part of it. Um, Sam Cooper, who's a, um, a, a, an investigative journalist in Canada, wrote a good book, Willful Blindness, talks about you know, you know, know how it works, at least in Canada. I wish he'd come into the United States and, 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 and do the same thing. Um, and then because in the United States it's killing people, you know, great. And the way – so – this is why this warfare, this type of warfare is so effective. The DOJ, the FBI, they look at drugs as abhorrent behavior. You know, it's, it's, it's criminal behavior. It's behavior outside the norm. Remember we said we're going to – China's going to systemize things and we're going to get rid of abhorrent behavior. Our system basically expects citizens to act, you know, you know, in, you know, in, 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 uh, in, the, in the best – they they expect citizens to be lawful, right? They expect citizens to act in their own best interest, which also happen to be in the best interest of the society. And therefore, the only ones that are going to be doing these bad things are people that are bad. And so let's create a system that where everybody's trusted, and then the bad people we just go after and we catch them, and they're criminals, and we lock them up. Well, when you look at that and you say, hey, um, you know, this is just criminal behavior – but it's supported by a system that's systemic, then you don't have the either the perception or the tools to deal with it. And the the analogy that I um, that I like to use is, you know, I tell people, I say, what if your what if your you know dad came home and he said, hey, we've got a big ant hill in the backyard. I want you to get rid of the ant hill. And you go out there and you set up an ambush point where the ants are walking by and you start killing ants. And your dad comes home later in the afternoon and he says, well, how did you get rid of the ant hill? And like how how successful have you been? And you say, well, um, you say, I you know I had set up this ambush point and I was killing. I'm a hundred percent effect. Every ant has come by this this in the last you know several hours. I've killed every. I'm a hundred percent effective. I'm I'm really doing a good job, Dad. And he's like, but the ant hill's still there, right? So it's the same thing for um, for FBI. If they lock up a criminal, boom, win. You know, and my stick statistics are I keep locking up more and more criminals. But are you slowing the flow of fentanyl to the United States? No, they're not. It's actually increasing. So what's going on there? Well, it's a st systemic thing. And so in order to get, you know, the Chinese Communist Party runs everything in China. In order to get the Chinese Communist Party to stop shipping fentanyl to the United States, it has to be painful on the elites. And what the Chinese have done is when you inflict pain on the Chinese elites, you're also inflicting pain on your own elites.
right? We move the supply chain over there. So the way that you get the Chinese to stop shipping you fentanyl is you say you're not going to ship anything to this country until the fentanyl stops, right? What happens? Your own elites come to you and say, we can't have that because I'm going to lose money. Right. So you right away, you've cut off any ability that you have to solve this problem because it's a systemic problem. People in China are getting rich. People in America are dying. That means that you're doing well individually. The party's doing well because it sees the U.S. as an enemy. And we've created a system that that really prevents us from doing anything about it other than just like we were talking about between Republicans and Democrats uh, in a performative basis right the fbi can try to hey we we arrested these three people uh or we got the chinese to arrest three people which by the way are out in two weeks so it's it, it's 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 warfare on a different label and you have to basically take a step back and say and when i so when i uh, went to china i did not think this way i completely believed that our relationship with china was a net good i wanted to go back to china and work there and it wasn't until I really started to understand the Chinese Communist Party when I was working in the Pentagon later on um, that I really began to see you have to look at the problem differently. If you don't look at the problem differently, then slowly, you know, what those businesses in, in Shanghai were telling me that we're going to make China and us. No, they're going to make us into them. And that's that's the problem. You've got this quote from Sun Tzu on how to deploy a stealth war in your book, and it says, All warfare is based on deception. Let your plans be dark and impenetrable as night, and when you move, fall like a thunderbolt. He advocates using spies and agents to study and demoralize the enemy to the point when an attack comes, the, en the outcome is decided. Attack a defeated enemy, he counsels. The army is the coup de grace. Hearing that makes me pretty scared, and it also makes me think that I'm guessing if we got to the stage where China actually declared a war, it would already be too late. Yeah, it would be. We would basically capitulate. I mean, that's their goal is to basically say, you know, things are over. But, you know, that being said, they're they're pretty good at just, you know, so if war is if, the way we think of war, it's a political out. You're, it's, it's politics by other means. If slowly you're getting the political outcomes that you want, and so by the by the point where you you know would need to go to war, you already find that your your adversary agrees with you. There is no point for war, and and so you know things that to, to them, to, that blow my mind, like just blow my mind, um, that I found out in the last two years is Imperial College of London, you know, which puts out put out the um, epidemiology model. That said, you know, all these people are going to die from coronavirus. Now, I looked at that model and I compared it to the data coming out of Italy. Italy was very hard hit very early on with the coronavirus. But the model was so out of whack from what the data you were actually seeing in, in Italy. I'm like, this is crazy. This is not this. These this number. The model is not correct. Well, the model is what was used to basically get us to accept that lockdowns and all these other measures are required. What blew my mind and what I didn't know uh, until Michael Singer had done the research and presented it to me is that in 2015, Xi Jinping had gone to the Imperial College of London, that the Chinese Communist Party was giving them tens of million dollars, that Neil Ferguson, the epidemiologist that was putting out the models, was basically on the payroll of the Chinese Communist Party. You want to talk about deception? I mean, that's beautiful. It's beautiful. You get your, the fear that you want to create comes right out of 
your enemy's own mouth. I mean, that's, that is sophistication. Dude, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. You've blown my mind today. I really, really enjoyed the book. If people want to keep up to date with what you do and find out more, where should they go? I'm on Twitter at Robert underscore Spalding. No you in Spalding. Um, I'm on uh, I'm on uh, LinkedIn and uh, and Instagram. General Spalding. Uh, GeneralSpalding.com is my website, and uh, and you'll see the book there. General Spalding, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>